Hello there and welcome to the podcast. It's John Markar here and I thought I'd just jump in with a very quick but very important message that I wanted to share with you before you delve into this episode of the Driven Chat podcast. This podcast, the Driven Chat podcast, has now come to an end. But don't worry, I'm not going to stop you from listening to this episode or from catching up with the 185 episodes that we've recorded in this format. I just wanted to let you know that if you're looking for our new episodes recorded after December 2023, then you'll need to seek out our new podcast, The Driven Podcast. You can find The Driven Podcast in all the usual podcast platforms, including, chances are, the one that you're listening to this one on right now. So please do enjoy this episode, share it with a friend by all means. But when it's done, don't forget to search for the new podcast, The Driven Podcast, and subscribe to the new format to hear the new stuff. To make life easy, head on over to the Driven website via driven.site. There you will find links through to the new podcast, including links to your preferred podcast platform. And hey, whilst you're there, why not check out everything else we do, including hand-picked automotive news stories, car and bike reviews, video features, and even more. For now, though, I'll let you enjoy this episode. And I will remind you again at the end of the episode, but for the future reference, this message is approximately 1 minute and 30 seconds long. That's six clicks on the 15-second skip button. Enjoy. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, I'm John Mayhead. I write about cars. And I have, up until this point, I've been writing for various different magazines. I Most people know me from uh, from from talking about data stories and all that sort of thing, which I do a lot for Haggerty. And that's why I came on a couple of years ago and we talked about that side of things. And I've just written my first book about a racing driver. And that's why I'm on today. The Driven Chat Podcast, powered by Paramex Digital. Hello and welcome to the latest Driven Chat podcast. My name is John Markar and sat this next to me, this next to me, this next to me, this next to me Hello, is... I'm Amy Haynes, hey. uh, which is uh, nearly normal now. And uh, yeah, in front of us, <laughs> we have the lovely John Mayhead that you just heard about. Hey. So uh, yeah, welcome. Thank, Thank you for coming to our little Thanks for having me again. <laughs> no, it's lovely. It's, um, yeah, it was, we, you dropped me a message a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about books and stuff and yeah. events and... I'm trying to make a book and it's not happening and you're trying to be very helpful and I keep ignoring all your messages. <laughs> so, and, and then you said, oh, by the way, I've just got this new book. And I said, oh, this sounds interesting. Let's have a chat. So, um, yeah, thanks for coming along. Yeah, thank you for having me. No, it's <laughs> um, it's great to be able to talk about it, really, at last, because it's been quite a long time in, in the offing and uh, with lots of like lockdowns and God knows what else happened um, to sort of delay everything but it's yeah it's at the printers at the moment we've got the cover in front of us we have which is uh, hot wicked. off the press um, and it'll be out at the end of the month so it's very exciting yeah this is very very exciting because um, we don't we don't really in the grand scheme of things I think back to all the conversations we've had journalists writers car designers video makers, film directors. We we haven't really had that many books to push. I can probably count on one hand how many books. I can only think of one and that because the the chap with the 
James Bond. Oh ones. yeah, Ben Robinson. Yes, I, say. I can't remember. Gosh, you and I did like four podcasts that day. It was many. There were many. We I think did. We drove a really long way for that one. Something like that. We I remember being tired. In, we started our day in the Midlands. <laughs> went to Putney to record with collecting cars. Then went down to. I don't know, quite corner of uh, Surrey. Uh, but we also had uh, Philippa Sage, who wrote a yes. book about Jeremy Clarkson. Of course, so, yes. Um, there's probably more. Oh, no, no, they're all coming back to me now. Brian Klein, <laughs> Top Gear director. He's done two books, so I've t- talked to him twice about those. Still, of everything, um, there's not very many book writers in there. We've had a lot no. more racing drivers than authors. I think exactly. Yeah. So you're you're one of one of few. Well, Thank in, you very you're much. A very exclusive. <laughs> yeah, club. very exclusive club. Um, I feel we should actually reference the fact that you it is your second time here, yeah. and because the last time you were on, believe it or not, the episode that we recorded with you proved to be one of our most popular downloads in a very very short space of time. Because I think people, there's a lot of people out there who perhaps, whilst I'm quite happy to admit that I'm a massive nerd, a lot of people out there <laughs> aren't as vocal about it but secretly like to do all sorts of analytic discoveries and have these discussions and listen in on these discussions. And of course, the last time you were on, so saying this for the benefit of the listener who might not have heard your previous episode with us, where you came on with the most amazing job title I could possibly ever oh, think yeah. of. Yeah. Uh, let me see if it's going to come back to me. Head of Automotive Intelligence. Yeah, Head of Automotive Intelligence <laughs> That's UK. a real title. Uh, yeah, it's really good. It's really cool. It's... Um, uh, yeah, so basically it's valuations, yeah. and uh, and so Haggerty, big insurance company, two million classic cars, but we also track everything else. So we track um, we track auction results, we track dealer results, we we speak to people, and and what we do is, you know, I'm a nerd like you, so I love drawing down into what you know what what try what 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 happens you know why do things why do some people buy certain cars and not other ones why do some cars go up in value and not other ones and we can look into stuff that other people can't so the demographics how old somebody is when they buy a car what do they buy the next car you know what trading up and all of this and so yeah I find that fascinating and Mm. I'm glad other people do as well and they seem to read the stories we we produce uh, which is which is great and uh, so, yeah, I, I love talking about that sort of thing. Yeah. And you're um, still there. You're still doing the same role. Absolutely. Yep. So still, um, you know, managing automotive intelligence, uh, which still, is still, <laughs> still shattering dreams. Of still people. shattering dreams. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's yeah, it's um, it's a great job, actually. Uh, you know, Haggerty's great. It's a great place. Um, still got that feeling of um, of real enthusiasm, the people that work there. Uh, uh, since we last spoke, I've got a, a chief analyst of automotive intelligence in the UK called Richard, who is absolutely brilliant, and he's great at digging even further than I am into, oh, wow. you know, into the goes beyond spreadsheets. So he goes into the real depths, and then he'll come out and he'll say, "This is interesting," and I'll go, "Oh yeah, it really is interesting," <laughs> and then I'll try and sort of write about it or talk about it got and it. Uh, and get it out there, uh, which is quite key because you can you can get the kind of analytical bit and you can make something uh, well you can find something which i find interesting but it's actually translating that into something which a lot of people can understand and find interesting amazing and is that the kind of the intricate level of 100 of these cars produced but these ones that have green over tanned leather or is it that level of intricacy absolutely yeah interestingly he worked for a uh, major performance car producer uh, manufacturer before before us uh-huh. and he was looking into all of those sort of things so which wheels uh, were better for resale which interior 
uh, extras and options and all that sort of thing. So he he you know we can really dial down into these things and it's and it's all the interesting cars. You know yeah, we we yeah. we deal with classic cars because that's what we're known as classic car insurer, but also all the performance cars as well, which yeah. uh, modern performance cars are doing a lot of lot of stuff with those at the moment. I love it. I love it. Love all this stuff. I, so I'm, I'm currently selling, and it's not a sales plug. I should point out, but it, it, it enabled me to do a little bit of reading and research, which was which was quite uh, cathartic. Uh, I'm selling a Z3M Coupe, which is a different one to the white one that I had before. This is a black one, and I thought I'm going to have a quick look because somebody uh, or a collection of people, perhaps on the internet, have gone through gone to the extent of. And this is quite a common thing with BMW M cars, especially of the kind of the millennial era, so late 90s, early noughties, where people have actually done done the legwork and found out every single colour combination. Yeah. Wheels, colour, leather leather trim. And they've itemised out every single colour combination and exactly to the exact number how many cars were produced in that specification in the world. So I was delighted to discover that my Cosmo Schwartz over Carl Army Interior Z3M Coupe is one of only 29 in the world. Oh, wow. Jumped for joy. <laughs> you see, I love, yeah. that's why I love uh, a German motor manufacturers. Yeah. Because you can do that. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've got, I've got I've got an old camper van, 1970 VW, and it's got a plate behind the seat, which tells you exactly what extras it was made yeah. with. My background's in alphas from the 50s 60s <laughs> yeah. they didn't know what came out of that factory you know they, they would you know there are no all these things about you know old alphas having matching number engines it's just ridiculous yes. and alpha didn't know what it wasn't number matching the engine was, David let alone yeah. let alone you know what color it was, I mean, it was uh, you know, it's, it's so true though isn't it you lift up the bonnet on most porsche products and there's oh. a there's an actual paper stuck on sticker that looks like it was probably only designed to be there for a week yeah but yet it's there with all the different codes of absolutely this option this Everything. option this paint this leather yeah brilliant yeah. thank you germany <laughs> thank you germany for appeasing our slightly bizarre brains um so yeah i mean let's let's definitely talk about this book because it's very exciting and the fact that you have had quite a um a busy intriguing involving day job I know, I mean, I've not written a book myself, but I have spoken to plenty of people that have, and I know that it's quite a time-intensive process, yeah. isn't it, with yeah, yeah. regards yeah, yeah. to research and reading and then yeah. writing and thinking about layouts and all that sort of stuff. How, with a full-time job as busy as yours, do you also get the time to write quite a comprehensive book? Um, I started before I was full-time as the first uh so i uh, first thing so i used to be freelance um for haggerty and uh, and i started um i started this back in 2018 and and it was it was an, an accidental kind of start because i was writing a a, a, a story about the Jarbecker um speed runs in near ostend in in belgium for haggerty and um and this guy Goldie Gardner just popped out as being this really ex- extraordinary person and I couldn't really find out anything about him and so started the writing then or started the research then uh found out the National Motor Museum had 35 boxes of his stuff so got in amongst all of that then started buying old books and um and then the lockdown happened and and I went from uh well and then I came on full-time with Haggerty about two or three years ago and um, then lockdown happened and it was just, you know, I think as a lot of people had, you, you weren't, you maybe had a bit more time to 
do other stuff and and I would go and lock myself I've got an office in the garden go and lock myself in there and and go and write uh as, as my you know and it, it helps me calm down I love writing and and I write in the evenings and uh and I write at weekends and I've got a very patient wife <laughs> who would let me go away from the kids for a bit just to give me some sort of headspace and then um after lockdown lifted again she would let me so I would go away on a on a Friday evening go to a pub stay overnight um write all day and then come back and um yeah and it's just kind of putting it together but for me it is it is very therapeutic the whole thing um so it's and it's been a real labor of love um you know this this guy I, I've discovered so much and also I've met so many different people involved in his life and all their families and it's been it's been brilliant including you know your husband yes. and, and the link there with... <laughs> well, th- that was the thing so um yesterday we, we got your kind of a preview of, of your book mm. and so um I had a quick skim through I mean mainly I was interested in the photographs let's be honest yeah <laughs> so um and I was like oh my goodness I had no idea that there was that kind of that that link really to um uh, lofty England and I've forgotten who else was in the photograph um but anyway the, the kind of the, the XK link Absolutely. to start so I was yeah, like yeah. So I said to William, I was like, ah, how, did, did you know about this guy? He was like, absolutely not. So yeah. I think this should be the point where, John Marker, you use your amazing voiceover voice oh God, right. to read it. Because otherwise people are not going to really know what we're on about. And I think this is the most amazing introduction to a book that I've ever read. <laughs> okay, I'm going to do my best here, dear listener. And if, Have if you read through sounds, it at all? I've read through it once. And if this sounds perfectly um, voiced, like I've read it for the first time, then it might be because I re-recorded it after this initial recording, but we'll see. <laughs> I should also point out that what I'm reading this from is the... Essentially, it's the test print, isn't it's it, the, of your front yeah, cover? Yeah, it's the proof of the dust jacket for the... Which is very the, exciting. So this would be the inside fold It of, would. Yeah, you yeah. turn the hardback, but right, it's very exciting. Okay, I'm going to have a go. going to have a go, dear listener. Uh, massive title on the front, Goldie, which, of course, re- refers to this. But how is this for a grabbing headline? Unfeasible speed, disgruntled Nazis, beautiful heiresses. Pretty good start, isn't it? If that hasn't hasn't grabbed you, I don't know what will. Here we go. For the tall, strong and determined Alfred Goldie Gardner, the transition from rugby captain to British army officer at the outbreak of of the First World War was a natural one. He thrived in the trenches of the Somme, quickly being promoted and decorated for bravery. Then, in the summer of 1917, everything changed. A bad decision and a harsh twist of fate led to a terrible wound that left his life altered beyond recognition. Without the sports and motorcycling that dominated his youth and, the, and only able to walk with the aid of a stick, he searched for a new direction in life. He found it on the banked concrete of Brooklands and the blackthorn-lined racing circuits of Ireland. With the acceleration of motor racing came camaraderie and a sense of purpose once again. But it was record-breaking that came to define him, prompting adventures around the world where he found love and national recognition, but also betrayal and loss. Finally, his obsessive attainment of speed records led to his own downfall and almost destroyed his family. Goldie is the true story of Goldie Gardner, the most prolific speed record holder there has ever been. With a supporting cast of daredevil aristocrats, ingenious engineers and beautiful heiresses, this biography tracks his extraordinary life from the cold showers of his private school to his death in 1958. It's a story of unfeasible 
unfeasible speeds, records snatched from disgruntled Nazis and secret wartime missions, but also of the deep human connections he made along the way. Until now, that story remained untold. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> I can already imagine it being a film directed by Crystal Nolan. And well, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying that we've already got the cast for <laughs> in my head anyway. I mean, I've just, I just watched Oppenheimer at the weekend and already I can see this being the next uh, thing really that he does. So, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Is that, do we know any, any links to Christopher? Chris? No, uh, no. Just, uh, don't look at me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see if he follows me on Instagram. Uh, no, he doesn't. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, yeah, that is quite quite the grab, isn't it? It, it does sound like it should be a film already. Yeah, um, <laughs> I agree. Yes, it does. It, it, it definitely, in the meantime, yeah. makes me want to read the book, which yes. is, of course, why we're here. So, I mean, this sounds such an incredible story. How do you, and you said, you know, I, I'd never heard of, of Goldie yeah. until you, you know, got through your, your, your book. Um, and when you, you know, said that you hadn't ever heard of him either. Yeah. How is somebody this awesome kind of lost to history? Um uh, it's a really good question, and uh, it is. He was uh, so uh, you have to kind of know a bit of his story, but he was quite a big deal pre First World War. Sorry, pre Second World War, where he beat some extraordinary records, and he did it in a very you know, as I said, in in, in sort of um, in Germany, with surrounded by the. Silver Arrows, you know, state-sponsored teams, and they were, and and he turned up in what was essentially a kind of his own car with a bit of support from MG, and and and, and broke records and took them home, and they were astounded. And he was, you know, in a in a time where, uh, you know, the national sort of support uh, for somebody like this waving the British flag was was extraordinary. So he he did really well. And then after the Second World War, he went straight back into it. Uh, but but times had changed, and he was getting on. You know, um, he was born in eighteen ninety. So um, by the time he uh, he he was breaking records after the Second World War, all the new generation of people were turning up. So you had these really glamorous people like Peter Collins and Sterling Moss, and and you know on their brand new cars. And then you had this guy with his old pre-war car who was rolling out. He was you know nearing his sixties, and um, and and he he was kind of just a bit forgotten about. And then the the thing that really made him uh, or, or or you know made him die in the public consciousness was the fact that he didn't die in a massive ball of flames, and he didn't survive. He he got whacked on the he got hit on the head in a uh, an accident with a with a, uh, a marker post hit him on the head, and it was a very um, uh, it was a very kind of small injury, but actually it caused uh, hemorrhage and then he degenerated over years and years. And so he kind of faded away rather than, you know, he, he didn't do a like a Donald Campbell and he mm. didn't he didn't stay around. And he was he was forgotten about, really. And uh, also he was not a showman. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Malcolm Campbell was one of his closest friends and he was his uh Goldie worked as his uh, uh um his kind of manager for for the 1935 Daytona Beach land speed record attempt and you know he was I said in an article recently he was a sort of yin to Malcolm Campbell's yang whereas you know Malcolm Campbell's this amazing showman who would always make the most out of everything and and Goldie really didn't 
and if you see him on there's there's old film footage of him he has this resting like furious face <laughs> he has this like, he's like this you look at him and it's like my god you wouldn't go near him and when he's on camera he's just not interested he, he's awful wow. on camera and uh, the combination of those two things mean that most of the photographs i mean there was one i found on uh, i think is one on uh, wikipedia and he's like glaring at the camera and, and and it's only when you see him with his with the mechanics and with the friends where you see the real him, which is where he's much more relaxed and much more open. And so it was, you know, he just wasn't very good at the whole publicity thing. <laughs> Not a great PR machine. No. Um, <laughs> although it was really interesting because he also kept huge records of everything he did. So he, even from the 30s, early 30s, he'd paid for clipping services, which were these companies oh, yes, that would take clippings from any newspaper and magazine all over the world and and send them to you. And so boxes of his stuff at, the, at Bewley are, are, are clippings from wow. everywhere around the world. And some of them are still in the envelopes. They're, they're mm. just wadges wow. of these clippings about everything he did. So he was obviously proud of what he did. Yeah. Uh, but but it, yeah, he wasn't good at, at getting out there and selling his story, which was an extraordinary story. Absolutely. So how did you discover him? <laughs> what was the, how did it get to a point where you had that little light bulb that went, hang on, why isn't anyone talking about this guy? Oh, it was um, completely by accident. Uh, I was going to a, uh, a friend's wedding in Holland uh, with my wife uh, in 2018 and we uh, I was freelance so I was thinking oh what else could I do on that side of the channel <laughs> which I could um, which I could you know get a use right for. exactly yeah <laughs> so um, and I I'd heard of this place called Yarbecke which is a dead straight piece of motorway just outside Ostend where after the second world war there were lots of speed records and there were loads of sort of famous people that went there so uh Sterling Moss drove there Sheila Van Damme they tested Norman Jewis tested mm -hmm. uh, the um uh XK120 there and um and so I went there I found it there's still a bit left next to the big motorway um and I wrote this article for Haggerty and 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 this guy who found it was this six foot three um, disabled war veteran mm. who stuck out the top of his car and drove extraordinary speeds there. And I thought, God, he sounds interesting. Also because I used to be in the army, it was like it was it was of interest to me. I tried to find out more about him, and other than a few magazine articles and a really at that point really bad Wikipedia page, <laughs> there was nothing out there and the last book to be written about him was his own autobiography in 1951 that's interesting so i mean you've now written a biography about yeah. him does it differ much from his autobiography is there a bit you found out and you're like actually oh, i've yeah really yeah i mean so his autobiography is very um uh it, it's it's very detailed so it is uh, i i went this speed and then i went one Point one of a mile an hour on the return journey, and uh, and then I, you know, etc. etc. Et um, he completely glosses over something. So his whole First World War experience, which was extraordinary, uh, is dealt with in two sentences. Uh, and and there's interesting reasons behind that. Uh, he doesn't talk about anything really in the Second World War. I mean, he talks about the sort of 
um, oh, I went here and I, I was posted here and I was posted here, but he, but he crossed the beaches on D-Day with, what? you know, in Montgomery staff. And he was involved in this amazing uh, things called the Coast Mission to evacuate the, the royal family mm-hmm. from London should the Germans invade. But I, I, I think at the time it's probably still secret. Yeah. That's why he didn't talk about that. And then it stopped because he wrote it up to 1950 and then 51, 52 were, were the last two Bonneville run so mm-hmm. none of that is in there um but I've tried to make mine a story uh that can be enjoyed by more people than just pure petrol heads mm-hmm. whereas his was more of a uh, a detailed sort of analysis of what he did for the records mm. I had a really good question that's completely gone because I was interested in listening to what you were saying <laughs> so, um <laughs> no I've gone <laughs> it, it is I find the whole it must be a generational thing with with uh, the guys and girls that served in World War One, World War Two, mm. who just don't seem that storytelling now from recent yeah. operations, wars, battles, everyone wants to tell their story. But what's mm. interesting is you, you hear about these people that you know have been through incredible chapters like D-Day landings and not wanting to tell that story. And I guess there are going to be many, many, many complex reasons as to why certain people don't want to do it. You know, I, I think back yeah. to my grandfather who had some quite interesting roles in the Second World War. And it wasn't really until his much, much, much later years that he started talking about some of them. And I guess that's because of harbouring you know, difficult yeah. memories and yeah. certain things that perhaps you're not that proud of, actually. Mm. You, you, you were doing the right thing for the right people, but ultimately the things you did weren't that great. Yeah. Um, so it's fascinating to, to discover that people lived through these amazing stories and wrote an autobiography but mm. yet didn't really talk about it so that was my question it was an obvious one how on earth did you find out this information especially as he died mm. so long ago and i don't know if yeah. he's, you know if he i mean he must have either spoken to some people about yeah. some of those things that went on or if he couldn't speak about them at the time then i can't imagine he wrote these things down or maybe he did write diaries that have been found how on earth yeah. did you find all of this all these amazing stories and bits of information out um uh, the so uh, his his wife una um, who he married um, just before the Second World War was um, w- was meticulous about keeping things, and uh, she donated uh, pretty much his whole collection to the National Motor Museum uh, about twenty five years ago, uh, maybe a bit longer than that actually. But uh, uh, there's tons and tons and tons in there, so there's lots of photography. He was a, a keen amateur photographer, so there's lots of his own photographs. Um, he annotates a lot of them he kept lots of records but then lots of it has been going down different uh, routes so um for me i think one of the best things about writing this book was that i i love kind of you know i love working working out the story and and researching and so uh, there were some mg historians some fantastic mg historians who helped me they gave me access to loads of letters from from the factory back in the day so you can kind of see sometimes both sides of the letters which was really good so there's one uh one archive that i had and then you've got the other archive in the national motor museum and of the other you know the response no to the letter so you could find each together. letter from each side and like yeah. kind of put it in a timeline of back and forth and back and forth um uh, other things were so the, the the mission, the Coates mission, was from a fo- a few photographs in the National Motor Museum, which nobody knew what they were. It was just him and uh, and um, Malcolm Campbell stood next to a load of racing cars with a load of military police people, 
in the early days of the Second World War, but that was it. And then there was a there were you, you have to kind of put them all together because then um, I I then got in touch with the military police and they had their archive and they knew roughly what had happened mm-hmm. with the Coates mission. Um, Coates James Coates, the guy who was in charge of it, was was in the Colstrom Guards, which mm. is what I was in. So there was that element to it. And then there was this uh, these letters from the um, Rygate uh, Auxiliary Police Force saying to Gardner, you know, thanks for doing what you did in the war. It was awesome. And then we started to sort of work out how what had happened. And um, th- there's still elements of that, which again, that would be another amazing film. But there, so we know that. That, that uh, Malcolm Campbell was put in charge of this group of military police. He hired all the TT riders and all the sort of like what would now be MotoGP riders, gave them all performance bikes, and they were his his group to get the the royals out outriders. Oh, wow. Outriders. Well. But what he, what we didn't know was, um, and then there were there was this group of there were four racing drivers. So there's a, there's a picture with him, Goldie Gardner, uh, AFP Fane, and one other who I can't identify yet because he's too far away all next to their racing cars. And and the, the Coates mission, basically what happened was, is there were four stately homes across the north of England. And uh, in the middle of the night, you know, Germans invaded, royal family getting cars and, and bikes, and they go. And uh, I what, what we think was happening was that you got one to each because mm. there were four and there were wow. f- four. And so they'd all bomb us and nobody would know which ones the real royal family were in. And that's what I think was going on. But he, the fact that he hired these racing drivers he knew. <laughs> wicked. Which was awesome. <laughs> so you know, this middle of that. It's a bit of a shame it didn't happen. Well, yeah. You know? As you say, that is a film. Right yeah. There. That's a book. That's it, it, a film. That's I mean, a Netflix it, series. I mean, that it would be incredible. awesome. But if it had happened, that's yeah. the only thing. So, uh, But it didn't. And then he ended up being posted to Scarborough in charge of <laughs> in charge of the the MT, uh, which is the um, uh, sort of like driver training for the Royal Artillery. Wow! But but then even that, he got bored of that, and then he volunteered for something. And that's how he ended up doing the D Day thing. I mean, um, could could you imagine anything similar happening modern day? Charles yeah. Leclerc, George Russell, <laughs> Lewis Hamilton. One's got William, one's got Charles, <laughs> one's got Camilla. It's fantastic. Valentino isn't it? Rossi yeah, is an yeah. outrider. Peter Hickman's at the back on his <laughs> <laughs> on his Apria. I, do, I yeah, wow, wow. So there was all of that, and that was before we even scratched the surface of his racing and <laughs> yeah. his, and also all the the backstory for me, which I found really interesting, was um, how much the First World War and his in, his experience of the first world war really shaped his whole life mm. uh, as it did i think for a lot of those record breakers and and racers from brooklyn's that brooklyn's era um and pretty much all of them didn't have a particularly in what they would see a, a good first world war you know it all ended a bit kind of strangely yeah it's a bit shambolic really, yeah it? well it, it was it was almost a personal thing so for Gardner, he was he did really really well in the First World War. He was very well uh, regarded as an officer. Um, he was given command very early, even though he wasn't a career officer. Uh, he was um, uh, he was given mentioned in dispatches. He won the military cross, which was third highest mm. award for bravery. And then suddenly, in uh, in the summer of 1917, he he was involved in this air crash, which basically you know just pretty much destroyed his leg and almost uh, uh it was almost amputated but he walked with a stick ever mm-hmm. after that and it led to him being discharged um 
as unfit for military service in 1921. And so many of the others of that era also had issues with how they left. And it was as if they were getting together at Brooklands, both for camaraderie, but also to prove themselves to their country, because then, you know, there were these daredevils who were doing stuff for their country and bringing national recognition and and it was almost as like oh, I I couldn't finish off the job I was doing in the trenches, so I'm now doing it now. Mm. Mm. Um, and it and that that then read that led straight into record breaking, where it was just that that they were. So he did all of his record breaking with a dodgy leg. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, and it got worse oh, no. because in 1932 he was racing in the Ulster TT, and uh, he had a horrendous crash in in a C type. Uh, MGC type midget and it rolled and actually landed on his leg and and on his bad one again and completely crushed it again hip and 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 um there was uh so he spent another three four months in Newton Arts Hospital and he said that the consultant used to turn up and tweak his toe Mm. and he used to think why why is he doing that and it was to see if it basically all the nerves had died and if it had leg would have come off but he didn't uh it just <laughs> he could walk even worse after that and then he started record breaking because he thought it was <laughs> he thought it was less dangerous activity than road racing which probably was but it's still I, yeah you I know see, I sort of see the logic yeah i it, what's interesting is do you think the record breaking for for him for him personally was a a task, you know, something to do and achieve. Because as you say, yeah. he clearly wasn't a showman. He wasn't out there to wave his own flag and tell everyone how brilliant he was. Mm. So do you think it was perhaps, because I guess there would have been various mental restraints to getting in a racing car and competing, yeah. not being at the peak of your physical fitness. You know, any any single one of us that has any form of day job, we know when we're not on our best form and therefore yeah. we might not have our best performance that day. We might not be able to do our job to our best ability. So I can imagine he, in an environment of looking at other fit, young, athletic racing drivers, would think, oh, I'm not going to be quite as good as these guys, so perhaps I'll do record-breaking instead. But did you find out any reason as to why? What was it? Was there something that a personal mission he wanted to accomplish or was it just something to do? Um I think at Brooklands, I mean, he was a good racing driver. You know, mm. he was winning uh, at at Brooklands quite a lot. Um, he uh, he's sort of the, the probably the the best. I mean, he would win like standard races at Brooklands. He he came first in class with uh, Dudley Benjafield in the BRDC five hundred. Um, but but the the point at which his life changed really to towards record breaking was in 1935 when, as I said earlier, he he was um, uh, he was Sir Malcolm Campbell's kind of fix it man for the for the Daytona Beach thing, and he went out there and he just saw how much uh, national respect there was for this person okay. who was with were breaking records yeah. and um, and. It, and also, he met his first wife out there, who was uh, an American heiress, who were, you know, incredibly rich, and that opened up a whole new world um, for him. And um, and and he became, I think, um, he thought, oh, I can I can do some good here. It isn't just winning a race for himself. This is something which he could do. Uh, 
uh, uh, wider, you know, as for, for his country. I still think there was a very strong element of uh, of pride in him, uh, in his country. And, you know, that element, which I think was quite common in those days and, and probably still is, but it was, you know, really wanted to to, mm. to sort of wave that flag. Um and and then, you know, through his wife, he was invited to do all sorts of things. So he was the only non-American to take place in the first ever uh, AAA stock car race on Daytona Beach. Wow. And yeah, and, and it was extraordinary. And it was this is in a, on literally on the beach mm. and where they cars were being bogged in and were having to be pulled out. Uh, but this was, you know, the precursor to NASCAR. And mm. uh, and then um, and, and then he kind of came back from this. And then this whole German thing happened where, you know, the Autobahn was extraordinary and and they wanted to showcase it. So they invited him along. And so he went along uh, with with his cars and um, and surrounded by these amazing, you know, Nazi war machine cars and all their power and money and everything else. And he just got out there and they went 207 miles an hour. That's insane. <laughs> in a in a. In an MG, you know, which was a streamlined car. And the extraordinary thing about it is, is the engineering is as extraordinary as the driver. Mm. You know, this, this thing had one set of drum brakes because they wanted to reduce the the, <laughs> the, the the sprung weight. It had no seat belts. It's got no, it, uh, you know, nothing else. He didn't wear a helmet. Um, there was there was there was a one point one liter engine, and he went over two hundred miles an hour. Twelve years after Seagrave went the same speed, in fact slightly slower in a forty five liter car, and and you know you look at that engineering is extraordinary, and also the the guts to just do that, yeah, um, which was amazing. Should also point people um, that are listening. You're pointing at the, the cover because it's yeah, the, the car that's yeah. on, on the cover as well. So like um, yeah, it was I don't, I've not read the book is this his main car he did lots of his his land speed record yeah. stuff in and was it his only car or did he end up getting invites to do other things in the, apart from obviously the stuff we were yeah he, he did other stuff um so uh his when he came back from um daytona beach he mm -hmm. bought a an mg k3 uh with a special offset single seat body from uh one of his friends at brooklands um and it had been quite competent uh but not as fast as he wanted it to be so he got uh, Robin Jackson, the, the famous uh, Brooklyn's engineer, to to sort of make it go faster, which he did, and uh, he did his first records in in that, and uh, that includes Germany and um, uh, in in thirty seven, thirty eight, and then it didn't go fast enough. And while he was there, uh, the um, you know the Germans said to him, "This needs to be streamlined. You know, this is a big, a big old beast of a car." And so he came back and um, got, I mean, he was a very persuasive character. He was, and he didn't have a lot of money behind him. I think that's the other interesting thing about him. You know, he wasn't like a lot of those other ones that had tons of personal money. He persuaded Lord Nuffield to give him a thousand pounds, which is a lot of mm. money in those days to, to put into this thing, which he would call the MG, you know, MG EX135, which is um, not too far away from here in, at Gaydon in the British Motion Museum. <laughs> Uh, and the cover on it, the the body on it, was designed uh, designed by Reed Railton, but it but it was very very similar to the extent that uh, it was patented from a German design from one of the Silver Arrows. So it was a, um, a Paul Jarry design. So you've got this very sleek thing um, with a 
quite a small engine in it, very lightweight, um, and him in this car, uh, which achieved all sorts of uh, records. But he, what he did was he um, he changed the engine a lot of times. So what he would do is uh, change the engine and get another record. So at the time, there were at one point there were ten different engine size <laughs> records, and at one point he held six of the. 10 wow. <laughs> speed records, outright speed records, international speed records. So he was al- almost obsessive to the point at which at one point he was, um, he went out uh, in uh, um, just before the war. Um, he went out just under 1100 CC and then his engineers that night bored, like, took the head off, <laughs> bored the piston liners in situ wow. uh, out. So for another sort amazing. of 20 <laughs> cubic centimetres and then he went back out the next day and beat the next record by having a slightly hard, <laughs> larger engine um so you know he was he was he was very good at getting getting these records i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Driven Chat Podcast. I mean, one of my questions I've got, and I feel like there's there's probably not a right answer to this, is, you know, researching everything you have, what's yeah. been your favourite story? But all of the things you've said so far oh. sound like they could very easily be your favourite story. They all sound yeah. so fantastic. Um, I mean, have you have you got a, a favourite story of something you found out? Or is uh, it something you've already spoken about? Um, oh, that's a really hard one. There's so many <laughs> different ones. I think um, my, my, probably my favourite one, I, I always love a human story. Mm-hmm. And my favourite uh my favorite thing of of the whole research has really been his relationship with his two engineers his two chief engineers and that was reg jackson no no relation to robin jackson uh and uh and sid enover and those two um anybody who knows like early mg history will know that those two were pretty much responsible for everything from the m-type midget all the way through to the mgb and you know they were absolutely critical and they stuck with him and i think that was one of the things that um the judge of the man wasn't how he was on camera it was actually his his engineers stuck with him to the extent that they even took time off work when he wasn't sponsored by mg they would take time off work and go over and still help him out Mm. um and um and that his relationship with them, when you get the photographs of him with them, uh, there's a great photograph of him in a taverna in Italy in 1946 where uh, he went out there to try and 
do another record. And the autostrada was awful. I've got these photographs of these potholes and all sorts <laughs> of things. And um, But there's a photograph of them in a taverna and they're all laughing and he's got his arm around a waitress. And it's it's just this, you, you, you haven't got this grim face guy. You've got mm. this person who's really comfortable in that environment. Mm. Um, the other judge of the guy was, um, I found a letter from one of his soldiers that served with him in the First World War. And he'd sent it to him mid-30s. And it says, oh, you know, you were always known as this sort of firm but fair person. And at the end of the letter, he's basically asking for him for money. And the fact that he kept that letter, I mean, it does suggest he probably did give him some money. But also, I thought that was really nice. He didn't just like screw it up and throw mm-hmm. it in the bin. And, and it, it, I, so... There are all those little elements of, actually, I really like this guy. And um, and I think it's a biographer's fear is that you'll get to the end and you go, oof, I don't like, you know, I'm yeah. not yeah. really comfortable with that. But, but I mean, that, that's literally one of my last question I wrote down was, what was your, how was your perspective of Goldie changed from when you first found out to yeah. the end of the book? So it sounds like it's changed for the positive rather yeah, than definitely. the scary one of, of oh, I don't like this person. Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> I think also um, uh, my respect for him. I've driven, I've driven his K3. I've sat inside his first record car, his K3007. I've driven a C-type, blown C-type midget, and it's bloody terrifying. All of those things <laughs> are terrifying. Um, and he did that, you know, not at the speeds I was going, but more than triple the speeds I was going. Um, and... Uh, and and I think the the big judge one of the one of the people who got a, a pre release copy to review was uh, was Richard Noble and um, he said uh, you know his words he said this the, he, this guy was extraordinarily brave and 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 he'd been told by Sterling Moss you know Sterling Moss was also driving streamlined midgets at Bonneville a few years after Goldie and. Um, Sterling Moss considered Goldie to be one of the bravest people he knew. And, you know, for that sort of thing, I think that just what he did, and also given his uh, lack of money, his physical disabilities, mm-hmm. um, I, I was was quite extraordinary. So, yeah, I'm a complete fan. You know, it was... Um, the. I think the other thing um, which has been absolutely lovely in this whole process is meeting all the families. Yeah. Mm. So Roz, his daughter, so he, she was a very late birth for him. So she was uh, born in um, in uh, 46. Mm-hmm. And uh, she got very uh, affected by his death because it was not a nice death. You know, it went on for a long, long time. And um, when I first started talking to her, she was very reticent about talking about the detail and she actually said oh I don't remember anything about my father and actually she did she did remember a lot and it took her a long time I think for it to come out and uh, that was really special for me because she I don't believe she'd shared any of that before uh, with anybody so there was that and also um, Jacko Jackson Reg Jackson his um, his granddaughter uh, Tracy Rose gave, gave me complete access to all of his stuff and then talked about, you know, family rem- reminiscences about what, what had happened. Um, there was, he worked at a place called Milner Russell, which, which he was a director, at, uh, it was a, um, a car dealership. And the, uh, the, the sort of chief there, his son, again, gave me access to all that, talked about 
you know what his parents could remember about Goldie, and it's it's all that kind of I love all of that. Whereas that that getting to know people through a story, it's been it's been really special. Yeah, I can yeah. I can imagine for the for the family as well to be able to see this story told for the mm. first time because there must, there must be so many unanswered questions. Yeah, and if if he was as coy about writing about his escapades in his own autobiography, you can imagine that around the dinner table it was probably even less so. He oh, just, absolutely. He wouldn't have wanted to share certain things. So it must be fascinating, and I'd be you know fascinated to hear that reaction from the family now yeah. once they get the opportunity to read the book and go. Blimey, you know, yeah. Granddad was an incredible man. Or... It's it's amazing. So um, Roz and uh, her cousin uh, Robert Gardner are the only two surviving direct relatives. And Robert, um, uh, it's interesting because I sent him a couple of early chapters of the book, and he he'd paid a researcher a few years ago to sort of find out what had happened in the war. And he said, "Oh my God, I've learnt more in the first <laughs> first couple of chapters of your book than I did a few years ago." And it's it's really lovely that I'm sort of giving something back to them. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, the the other side of this is uh, is w- another reason why I'm doing this is this is the first book published by the National Motor Museum publishing arm. Uh, oh. It's the first time, and the the, the Beaulieu have been absolutely brilliant all the way through uh, with their archive and with ph- photography. You know, all of that amazing photographs. Mm, and tons and tons and tons of them. And I had to really, it was the hardest thing was yeah, thinning them out so yeah. I could just put the ones in for the book. But the um, the most uh, important thing for me is that, you know, the, the, the reason the National Motor Museum is there is to tell the story of motoring. And that's what this is about. This is about telling the story, not just to motoring enthusiasts, but to wider than that. It's like, this is a fascinating period of our history and it's really important you know it's all about post-war growth it's always about it's about pre-war you know national pride it's about mm-hmm. um people supporting each other and it's a brilliant story you know it's a human story as well about yeah. an extraordinary guy and i just think it should be told so um some of the some of the money from this is is supporting the National Motor Museum, nice. and um, and we're encouraging other people to. Uh, <laughs> I'll have a chat <laughs> I'm looking at to, um, to to help share that that yeah. story of motoring. Yeah, it is. It, it's so true. And a, a thought that commonly pops into my head popped up there as you were talking about the celebration of of the man, and I think, and again, it's fascinating looking at the way that the public admired certain figures of yesteryear, and by yesteryear I mean that we're going back almost 100 years or so, versus modern-day yeah. celebrations. And you think back to your record holders um, were celebrated massively. Yeah, yeah, you know, it was, it was front-page yeah. headlines of... Yeah. Malcolm Campbell, of course, I think is the one that most people will think of, and yeah. the Bluebirds and the, the celebrations of those accolades. And then you go forward another couple of decades and we were landing on the moon and mm. you humans were doing things that humans had never done before. And these, you know, people would come back from these achievements and be paraded yeah. down high streets with yeah. th- tens of thousands of people there waving and cheering. And you think about who's being celebrated in the modern era now. Mm. Is it somebody that ultimately got famous because they filmed themselves doing something that ultimately they shouldn't have done, but yet somehow that's one of the most celebrated, most loved personalities in the world. And it's like, what's gone wrong? You know, why, yeah. where, what's happened firstly to the bravery of people, people wanting to go out and celebrate these things? Because I know there are people out there currently, you know, 
climbing Everest with two limbs missing yeah. and there are people doing amazing things. But the sad truth is we don't really hear about these people mm. in favour of pop stars that are singing songs written by the people. Or yeah. it's, it, is, it is another world to go, isn't it? This, this kind of absolute out-and-out bravery... And I've always enjoyed using that word or discussing that word when talking about achievements like this because there is obviously a line, isn't there, between bravery and just sheer stupidity. Yeah. 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 It's, it's interesting because I've, one of the other questions I've been asked about this and having, you know, I served in Iraq and Afghanistan, Northern Ireland, uh, uh, back in the day. And uh, they people have said, oh, do you think that they were, like, looking for the thrill uh, and Brooklands mm. and, mm-hmm. and these? And I don't honestly think they were because I, I you, you don't it doesn't make you like it you know no. you but, but maybe you get better at dealing with it yeah. and I think that what they could do was maybe be aware that this is a very dangerous activity but be able to control themselves mm. and so uh, when he was driving along the autobahn at over 200 miles an hour in this car and he got a sidewind that pushed him sideways and and, but he just controlled it and he kept his foot down you know wow. that that's that's the is that bravery or is that you being used to doing that i mean i'm no doubt he was very brave mm. and, and the way that uh he was um you know the way he managed to you, you just, we, we've got a mower outside just in case anyone's listening going is that, is that the sound of a Merlin engine Spitfire <laughs> yeah. taking off no it's a ride on lawn mower yeah. um, which is now going straight outside the window it yeah. is going right outside our studio window just at the is point a of point talking that we about should bravery pause, exactly. I think we, we will we'll have a little pause here whether or not this particular bit makes it in uh, we shall see but we are going to have a little pause whilst man on lawn mower goes past and then we will pick up in just a couple of seconds for you dear list oh no hang on is he gone no, Amy's now looking out the window like a nosy neighbour, a curtain-twitching neighbour. Can't see him. He must have gone right ahead. Does the grass outside our window look moan? This is the problem. Uh, Only one strip. I can, I can okay. hear. He's coming back. Yeah. He's, on his <laughs> retur- he's on his return pass. He's on his return pass. <laughs> right, uh, bear with us, dear listener. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of seconds without the sound of a lawnmower. And we're back. That was a very short second and a half for you dear listener but for us we've had a, we've had a coffee we've been to the loo we've had a little <laughs> mid recap um but the good news is uh, the man with the lawnmower has has gone he's left some beautiful stripes on the lawn outside uh, but he has gone um now where were we we're talking about bravery and oh, I, yes. and and seeing if the, you know these people were uh, brave or, or or not brave mm. but I, I, one thing that I've always thought is that when it comes down to if something's brave or naive or stupid or whatever mm. it's usually decided after the act has been done so yeah. if it has gone well yes. yeah. thing, then it was brave if it didn't go well it was stupid yeah, it's folly yes yeah. so yeah. Um, but no by the sounds of it he was a very brave man <laughs> he was he, he was a very brave man and and I think you know uh, his so it the, the last thing he did uh, aged um 62 uh, at Bonneville uh it was he pushed it a little bit too far but but it wasn't you know the, of all the risks he'd taken mm-hmm. it wasn't a great risk really um he I, I don't want to spoil the book but he uh leave us hanging then don't you yeah don't have to explain it. Uh, yeah. yeah something um, happened it, something something happened, happened. Yeah. and um you know he made a choice and and but but you know, in the greater scheme of things, he'd done much more dangerous things in mm. the past. No, I, I do think they were brave. And I think he was brave in particular. But I think that, um, 
you know, there was a reason behind that. And I, and I think, I, I, you know, I, I know you were talking earlier about uh, whether we judge people these days. I think um, from my perspective, we, I think we're a bit harsh sometimes on the mm. younger generation. We, you know, you see a lot of people doing um, some pretty brave things, mm. both in cars and, and also, you know, in in the armed forces yeah. and uh and i and i think it would still it still comes out it's but it but obviously our safety standards are just extraordinary compared of to course. these guys yeah, yeah. you know yeah. and the other thing i think on the on the bravery and safety and that that element of was it brave was it naive was it actually a bit foolish mm. i think given his history and what he'd done as a profession up to this point he'd be very calculated he'd be very aware yeah. of what he was about to embark on what could go wrong which i think is yeah. the most important thing ever and I, I always find that interesting when i talk to um racing drivers or motorcycle riders especially yeah. you know who will all say yeah we know what we do is mm. is risky stuff but we have confidence in our ability we have confidence in the engineering we have confidence in the safety equipment we wear and whilst the safety equipment and the engineering were marginal in comparison to what we have now for yeah. for goldie back then um, he still would have had that process of he would have had an internal checklist going yeah okay this could go wrong this could be bad but I'll try to reduce risk by oh, doing ABC absolutely I mean he was fully aware of the dangers I mean, Brooklyn's not you know surprisingly few people were killed at Brooklyn mm. considering how <laughs> bloody dangerous yeah, the thing yeah. was and uh, 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 and the the state of the track by the 30s was was pretty awful you know there's lots of patches of big bumps everywhere yeah. and you see you know there's the famous photographs of them going over the bump over the river yeah, and they're all foot off, off the you know yeah, yeah. yeah and um the other thing was uh, tire uh, and the tires were were pretty basic in those <laughs> days and there was one point he was racing and he was uh, he says he was clapped on the shoulder and and it was a massive piece of tread from his rear tire that had just come off oh and hit him and so he thought mm, probably not a good idea but finished the race came in and just bawled you know yeah. just on the canvas and that that's but that's what they did they didn't know you know you didn't have speed rated tires nope. to go 207 miles an hour you just had a you had the manufacturers who would try their best to make something that would go that fast but it was all a bit how did you test it you know there was well, no way nobody had a machine or a rig you know to to rotate the tire at because I think it's something like if you want to do if you want to calculate 300 miles an hour of road driving, you've got to rotate that tire at something like 700 miles an hour on a yeah. rig to see what the actual forces would be, what it can withstand. Which of course wouldn't have even been thought about back then. But the no, other thing not. as well, and I'm looking at the front cover of the of the book here and the car, the physical yeah. MG, is something I always like to think about. Is the fact that we as engineers didn't actually really start thinking about or let alone developing aerodynamics until yeah. the 1980s really like properly we had a rough idea of what was a streamline and what probably worked but ultimately aerodynamics then was guesswork it was yeah let's make it look slippery and smooth and hope mm. that that works yeah and yet somehow a lot of these cars from this era really did work you know they they, they really did i think the um as i say this was a reed railton um uh, he built the body but it was a jarray patent and that 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 Paul Jarry was an extraordinary person, and that's you know there's another story there. Was that the, this is somebody who uh, uh, in in the 
very early 30s was was designing these beautiful streamlined things and you know a lot of people will look at that and think that does look very similar to the uh to the to the silver arrows cars and it was you know that that's that's where they were getting it all from and they're getting these extraordinary speeds from these cars um and very lightweight bodies you know there's yeah. this great photograph i think i put it in the book you did where the, he's frame, holding the frame where he's yeah. holding the frame yeah. of one yeah. person and yeah. that, that's it you know it's um so they were getting it then what they didn't you know as you say there was no computer-aided design mm. um and uh, and you know, lots of the backs of these things were actually causing quite a lot of turbulence and lots of little things. But even bits like uh, the early version of the car had a had a, a raised, I think it was a chrome MG on the front. And um, Eberhorst said, said to them, you need to get rid of that. You know, you need to make that flat. Mm. And so they made that flat and it went wow. faster. You know, it's the, all those sort of bits. So, um, and angling the exhaust pipes backwards slightly and made you know, just another mile per hour difference and uh, <laughs> enclosing the cockpit. And so it's, it's, yeah. it was all a, a proper engineering, you know, mm. just trying, try, mm. trial, trial and error really was Absolutely. a lot of it, yeah. which was, uh, I, I love it. You know, my dad's a mechanical engineer and uh, I've always been kind of fascinated in it, but not, not, it is my area, but, but how they developed these things and knowing what they knew and they were absolutely brilliant people really extraordinary yeah yeah absolutely as you say trial and error it's which is something we don't really get the luxury of doing anymore because there's already before the car's even been modeled yeah somebody's done a data analysis and gone that yeah. that will work because and won't work because yeah, yeah. so the car just yeah. becomes what it should always have been whereas back then it was just a case of yeah let's try this i remember having fantastic conversations with the guys behind the the john wire era um 718 porsche Le Mans cars where they were mm. basically bringing the cars back in on race days and duct taping or or yeah. pin tacking bits of metal onto the back to make what would then be referred to as gurney flaps to <laughs> see if that would alter the aerodynamics because the drivers were coming in going it feels a little bit like it's trying to take off down the yeah. Mulsanne straight and there'd be a mechanic going oh I know let's just hammer this on yeah. and see if it works you know? yeah, yeah. and that was relatively modern day in comparison to what these guys were doing back in their, back in their time Were there any bits that you thought I'm actually going to leave that out not out of lack of interest but maybe out of respect Um no, um, there were there there were a couple of things which I I, I wasn't sure about. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's one big kind of twist at the end, and I'm not going to go into that. <laughs> but I wasn't sure, so I've offered two potential answers to a v- pretty fundamental question, mm-hmm. um, which is you know that's, that's I know, enticing yeah, I to read. <laughs> um, um, and the the other thing, and I haven't talked about this with anybody else. Uh, was um, whether he was gay. Okay. Now, it's really interesting because I suppose... Because you talk about him, but, you know, he seems to be a womanizer, or well, sounds well, like that from yeah. the surface. Um, he, he's, he's, it, uh, and the reason I haven't gone into this mm. is because there's there's nothing to back it up. There's, mm. there's, um, uh, this was something that came out of a conversation with his daughter, and she put it forward as a possibility Um uh, 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 oh, but but it's it's one of those really strange things because he on the one hand he had a succession of very young very beautiful a lot younger than him um, and very eligible women um, in his life um, but then there's the other element of he also they hardly ever went to any of his races or his his records I mean only his um, uh, one. One girlfriend went to something in Germany and, and his wife 
and daughter Roz went to something in 1948 with mm-hmm. the Jaguar when the Jaguar engine car in was in Belgium and everything else they weren't allowed to go with him and there are photographs of him being much more tactile with men than he was with women. With the women, he was like standing next to them. Whereas with the men, he was like in our, arm in arm and things like that. But we're, we're, I'm put, I, I, I didn't go there because I, 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 you know, are we just putting our modern, mm. you know, um, norms on that? And was that just normal? Because he was, I mean, he had a, a, a friend uh, um, called Freddie Clifford who went everywhere with him. And, um, I don't know. And so this was something um, that I, I, I haven't put in the book at all. So that was the only, the only thing, really. Mm. Interesting. Um, and, and I think also is it, it is, although it is written to be, um, to be accessible and to be a you know, story mm. and to, to explain um, where, you know, what it feels like. Because I've driven old cars. Um, this is my job. And I've also, I've been in the army, so I've been shelled and things like that. Not as much as him, obviously. Uh, but I've kind of tried to explain what it's like mm-hmm. and what it smells like and feels like and, you know, to drive a, drive a car fast and an old car. And, um, but what it also is, is a history. So what I've tried really hard not to do is to make anything up. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, so there's, there are elements where I would love to have, Put more in about the 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 Coates mission about mm. you know because that's a fascinating thing. Yeah, but I just can't find any more about it. Uh, and maybe somebody will in the future, and we'll be able to write more about that. But but so there's I've kind of drawn the line with um, as I as you have to as a biographer, you've got to make sure that you can write it in a and in an, an interesting way. But you've just got to be you can't you've got to stick romanticize to the fact. No, fantasy you can't. Yeah. It's very easy to do that. Yeah. Oh, God, um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think lots of writers fall victim to it. And it's not, yeah. you know, I know why it happens. And I think I'd, mm. it's something I'd probably stumble over is the, the idea that you could romanticise a story that's already quite exciting but yeah. make it even better because, well, maybe this was going to happen. And yeah. you can't. Because, as you say, no. at that point, it goes from being a biographical, historically perfect book to something that yeah. maybe is a bit wild <laughs> absolutely and there's elements of it which um so for example when i was writing about the first world war and there's an incident um right in the beginning of the book where he is being shelled mm. and his company his, his battery are being shelled and there's elements in there which um so there's there's i've written it but all of those are tied in from other things so there's a uh, there's his um, it was the point at which he won his military cross. So there's his, his, you know, the write-up for his military cross. So that explains what happened. You've then got all the um, the records from his, you know, that his unit wrote after the event. So said who was injured, where they were injured, how they were injured, mm-hmm. and that. And then also elements like I talk about one of his his most capable non-commissioned officer. Well, I know he was the most capable one because he was the one that got promoted. Yeah. And, you know, in the next, the, the, you know, he was the one that was always there with him. And, you know, there's, so there's, 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 there's got to be that. You've got to be true to, to, to what's there. I think there's, it's fair enough to, for me to put my, and I did it at the end. I, I sort of talked about the legacy of, of Goldie Garden. I put my spin on it and also the impact it had on me because, I ended up buying one of his cars completely <laughs> by accident. I shouldn't have done that, but um, 
these things happen. Yeah, these <laughs> things happen, you know. Um, and um, so I'm a, you know, I, 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 it's been quite a, it's quite a big journey with me, but, uh, but you've got to keep it, you've got to keep it real. Mm. Um, I think one of the things that, uh, uh, as, as a National Motor Museum publication as well, is that, you know, this has to stand alone. It has to do two things. It's got to tell the story of motoring, but it's also got to be a, uh, a, of use to future generations of historians. Yeah. And, and I think that uh, I, what I've tried to do is keep a lot of notes in mm. for people like us who are a bit more nerdy about the <laughs> and we've got I've got I've got lots and lots of information in annexes at the back so you can go every every race that I've managed to find every record speeds um cars all sorts of stuff and even since it's been to the printers I've found more information no, no. it's really <laughs> annoying but you know well, that's for later editions to come absolutely out. Yeah, yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. um I suppose the last thing I want to ask them really is have you got the next story that you're planning on, on, on who to write about or what to write about? Ah. Or is, are you just getting this one totally out of the way first? And no. Then... <laughs> um, I'm, no, I, I haven't intentionally because uh, I didn't realise when I I, I, I... I generally write for magazines and online and it's great because you write your bit, you send it off to somebody, they go, yep, fine, and then it's published and I have no idea how that happens. Yeah. And it's great. Um uh, this was completely different. So once I'd finished writing, I was like, oh, good, done it, done my bit. I was like, no, 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 only just starts. So you've then got indexing, you've got to work with the designers. I mean, I absolutely love the design of this book and it's been really important to me and actually is for me to be involved so much in the design. Uh, um, uh, and and James Brissett being way, I've got to call him out. He was the designer of the book absolutely brilliant and he came up with some fat absolutely brilliant sort of little elements which i just love all the way through and some of them he'd been sort of showing me and i'm like oh my god what are you, you know he, at one point he made all the like the actual black and white photographs yellow he's like no it's going to really stand out i was like yeah but it's a little bit too far <laughs> um but then he's brought out those elements uh which i loved um Maisie minette who was a cartographer and and uh, has made all the maps brilliant you know and that sort of thing i've i've loved it but the then there's this sort of thing you know it's trying to get it out there mm. and get people to know about it uh the indexing i had no idea how complicated indexing was <laughs> and proofreading you can read something 17 oh, times don't. you give it to somebody else and they go oh you've spelled seagrave wrong all the way through I was like, <laughs> yeah. no how yeah. have i done that and then you go back and uh, correct it in time luckily um, thanks, Richard Noble, for that one. Uh, uh, the, uh, <laughs> he said through gritted teeth. Oh, my God. No, I mean, my God. And, and blinking spell check. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, um, no, it's it's it, it has been... Uh, it's been a lot of work, but it's been... I want to get this one out of the way first. Mm. Um, I think there are interesting stories out there. I think uh, all, all of that previous generation, so previous, previous, previous generation now, but... Um, George Easton um, uh, um, uh, was was a fa another fascinating guy. Um, there's, you know, a lot's been written about Campbell, obviously Seagrave, uh, Seagrave's um, forty-five liter sunbeam. You know that that's uh, that's being restored now by the National Motor Museum. So there's a story in there. there there'll be something that will pop up. But mm -hmm. I'm no, I want to get this one uh, calm, 
calmed back in my life first. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, yeah, I think you know, sort of get to know my wife again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got family, kids as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so get to yeah. get to see them um, again. <laughs> but um, you know, going back to the old National Motor Museum and what its story is, you know, it, I, I think that for uh, for me, the um, the heritage of, of motoring in all its forms, from engineering to accomplishments like this, it's really important that we tell that story in an engaging way. And we do it, and, you know, this is intentionally priced at 20 quid. So it's nice and cheap, and you can, you can not cheap, but, you know, you can buy it. It's not going to put people off as mm. a book. And um, that's intentional, so we get that story of motoring out there. And and I think we need to, you know, we're in a tricky position. We, we um, uh, motoring, especially... Uh, internal combustion engines are coming under much more um, stress from people you know, looking at them and and criticizing and and we need to say no as part of our national heritage this is really important mm -hmm. and yeah. you know cars have created so much freedom for the individual person more than probably anything else in history and 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 there were some extraordinary people along the way who did some ex amazing things, and and that's why we should tell that story. You're right. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So important question, and the, the call to action for our dear uh, listener is: where do we go to? Because at the time that this episode goes out, the book isn't out yet, but a couple of weeks it will be. But you can pre-order you can um so uh, all good bookshops is the good thing to say uh it comes out on the 31st of august 2023 um you can pre-order it on amazon uh, or you can pre-order it uh through my website which is johnmayhead.com j-o-h-n-m-a-y-h-e-a-d um, my pre-orders will be fulfilled by the national motor museum so if you right. want to those will be sent direct and it will they will get more money perfect so that's um, that's so the, that's the link you'll find that, in the bio that's, that's the one you'll find in the bio but then there's the other element of it if you go on amazon i don't mind that at all because then that pushes up the you know all the algorithms the and all that yeah, sort of yeah. malarkey so um yeah wherever you want to do it and and if you're at the revival uh we are doing an official launch at the revival on the national motor museum stand Great. you can see my little mgtc which used to belong to him and we got some brilliant photographs of him in it and with it and test running routes in it and things like that in 1946 uh, and you can meet me and i'll sign your book for you happily so uh come on the stand of the revival if you want to Perfect. or go to Bewley. it's an awesome day <laughs> <Yeah>. out <laughs> or read um, the book then go to read the, yes. read the book go to Bewley, um and uh and um yeah just and, and buy it from them and they'll again they get have you been told the uh, the industry secret, but definitely not a secret, about if a bookstore asks you to come and do a book signing? Do you know about this trick? Oh, no. So if that happens, say yes. Sign as many books as you can, as mm. many as you can. If there are if five hundred people are coming, sign a thousand books. Right. Do you know why? Because they can't send them back. A signed book is a sold book. <laughs> ah, that's a very good so, point. Sign and sign and yeah, sign brilliant. and sign and sign. Do that. <laughs> Turn up for an hour, an hour early, sit in a corner, just sign them. So, so what we're saying is if you get an unsigned version of my book, it's going to be quite a rarity. <laughs> <laughs> too right. Yeah, too right. Um, yes, dear listener, scroll down to wherever you're listening to this episode in the show notes below, regardless of when you're listening, whether you are listening in August 2023 or 
many, many, many years in the future. The links uh, should still be relevant there. So um, yeah, pop down there. You'll see the link to go through to buy the book or pre-order the book if you're listening uh, as one of our early listeners. I personally can't wait to read it. I think this is going to be genuinely brilliant. And, and Thank you. I think we joked before we went before we hit the record button, like Amy was saying about you know, Christmas presents. I'm thinking about like my dad is going to love yeah, this. No, I, I, I texted John last night, being like, "Hey, tomorrow, can you bring a copy?" And because like, I'm going to, I'm going to get <laughs> yeah. this for, for Will or something. So yeah. Will, it's as a Christmas present now. You know about. Um, but yeah. yeah, and he's like, "I'm not, they're not printed yet." But um, yeah, no, very easy. It's so just brilliant. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. brilliant. Well, thank Can't you. wait. Thank to you so much for coming in. No, yeah. it's been. Thank you for having me. It's been fantastic fun again. Yeah, really enjoyed really it. Good. See you at Goodwood. Oh, I'm, I'm going to come along to the stand. Definitely. I'm going to come along yeah, to the stand yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah. We'll be there, like, two fans. <laughs> oh, God, there's John. <laughs> Perfect. Right, call to action for you, dear listener, beyond going and buying that book, which you're probably already doing now, well done, is um, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast platform that you're listening on because this yes. might be the first time you're listening to us so if it is welcome there are quite a few episodes for you to catch up on now similar conversations just like this there is also a previous conversation with john that you can go back and listen to if you're interested about finding out i think i titled it uh i still can't can i afford an f40 yet i think is what i titled <laughs> yeah. the episode as still uh, no still spoiler no. alert is <laughs> no uh, interestingly the market values haven't crashed uh can't really work out why but there is a fantastic additional podcast that you can hear if you've enjoyed the sound of john's voice uh, you can listen to that one as well where we talk about exactly that why are certain cars going up in value and certain cars not and a uh, fascinating insight on how to avoid insider market trading thanks to amy Shaw, <laughs> <laughs> who then was amy Shaw, now amy haynes uh, she has had to change her name by law yep. to escape the authorities who have been investigating her for the insider trading that she tried to inflict on haggerty <laughs> some of the some of these facts may or may not be true <laughs> uh, but yeah go and have a listen to that make sure you are subscribed uh, wherever you're listening if you're feeling especially kind and if you've enjoyed this episode even more so uh, why not leave us a nice review because that does wonderful things for us and our bizarre algorithmic system of things we don't understand which is the chart system um so yeah go and do that and if you've really enjoyed it and you think hey i know who's going to enjoy this episode why not send them a link because it's free and it costs you nothing costs them nothing and does lovely things for us so thank you don't forget you can see everything that we do at driven.site including written articles our back catalogue of videos our back catalogue of podcasts there as well uh, and of course some news stories that get up fresh every day or so so um yes lots more automotive content for you to enjoy for now i'll say thank you so much for listening thank you amy thank you thank you john thank you and uh, speak to you in about a week bye bye goodbye the driven chat podcast powered by paramex digital Oh, wow. You've made it to the end. The very end. And it's John Markar here again, reminding you that this podcast, the Driven Chat podcast, has now run its course and has come to an end. To find the new format, search the Driven podcast in your preferred podcast app or head on over to the website driven.site to find some quick and easy links through to the new episodes in the new formats on your preferred apps. Thanks. Bye.